on the engineering side and the artistic side, there's always a mix of the two. The mix varies. On the artistic side, we're, we're driven more by aesthetics. Um, and so then it feels more like art. But very often to accomplish my aesthetic goals, I'm using math and computers and tools, uh, laser scoring to, to score folds into paper and things like that. So I certainly use a lot of engineering-like things to create my own. Similarly, on the engineering side, even doing when I was doing lasers and optical electronics, there's an aesthetic component to the work in that, um, yes, I was trying to solve specific technical problems, but I would follow solutions that appeared to be elegant. Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robertazzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Robert J. Lang. Robert is one of the world's leading masters of the art of origami. His work combines aspects of the Western School of Mathematical Origami Design with the Eastern emphasis upon line and form, and has been shown in exhibitions around the world, including in New York's Museum of Modern Art and Paris's Carousel de Louvre. He has consulted on applications of origami to engineering problems, ranging from airbag design to expandable space telescope. He is the author or co-author of 21 books on origami art and design. Robert tells us what made him quit his job in laser physics to switch to origami full-time, how he applies families of patterns from origami to industrial problems, and what constitutes good origami in the art world and in the engineering world. He describes what elegance in design is and how pursuing elegance can lead to surprising results. And finally, we share the resources that will help you to get started learning origami. Well, welcome to the show, Robert. We are very happy to have you on. Thank you. Welcome. So I, I found a great quote on your website where uh, it says you are a pioneer of the newest kind of origami using math and engineering principles to fold mind-blowingly intricate designs that are beautiful and sometimes very useful. And I, I thought that was pretty funny, the sometimes very useful. So I think we want to get into all of that because that speaks a little bit to the engineering and the artistic sides of this. You've spent, spent many years uh, as an engineer, physicist uh, in R&D, doing technical work, and also had this uh, origami hobby for most of your life, it seems like, since childhood. So what, what was the decision or process that made you finally make that leap into full-time artist? Yeah. So I, as you said, I'd been pursuing origami pretty, pretty avidly as a, as a hobby, nights and weekends. Um, I'd written, by that point, I'd written six books of collections of my designs that were pretty well received. And throughout all that time, I'd had an idea for a book that I wanted to write, which was how to design origami. So not just teaching people to fold my designs, but teaching people how they could come up with their own designs. And I worked on I, I, I made attempts at this book over about 10 years and never really made headway on it. And I finally came to the conclusion that 
it wasn't something I could do a little bit at a time in nights and weekends. That if I was going to write that book, it, it needed to be something I was devoted to my, my, my full-time activity. And so that raised the question for me, uh, do I write this book or, um, you know, or do I not? I just go on with my regular life. And I concluded that uh, there were plenty of other people who could, who could do laser physics, which is what I've been doing. Um, but I felt like I was the only person who could write this book and it was a book that needed to be written. So that was the instigation to quit my job and spend a year or two writing this book. But then as I was doing that, I also started following up on all the leads for other origami type activities and employment that I really never could when I had a full-time job. And over the next couple of years, as I finished the book and it came out, the number of those opportunities grew because you know one thing leads to another and word of mouth and this sort of thing. So that after a few years, it, it became clear that origami could be a, a going concern for me. It could keep me off the streets and gainfully employed. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a whole lot of fun. So I just really never went back. And, uh, and now it's been 20 years or so. Um, and I still have no plans to go back. Right. <laughs> and still, we talked about the sometimes useful compared to the beauty of just being an artist. You still do some consulting in industries? Because part of how this came about is I have a brother who's a professor of electrical engineering, and he kept sending me, uh, and he knows about my podcast, so he kept sending me articles of, you know, origami being used to launch a space satellite, origami being done here. And uh, so, which is how I kind of started researching it and found you. So do you do that type of work as well? And, and what kind of projects interest you in that space? Yeah, I still am pretty active. In fact, right now, the uh, consulting is, is probably the, the part, uh, the, mo the largest part of my, what I call my commercial origami work. And uh, a lot of it is, some of it's consulting for companies um, who are developing some sort of product that involves holding. A lot of it in the last several years has been consulting with uh, university teams who are exploring the applications of origami. And, and this is wildly diverse um, because it's been with a lot of different professors, a lot of different uh, universities, and, and they are themselves pursuing pretty wildly different sorts of activities, ranging from... Uh, uh, nano origami by, by folding graphene um, up to up to structures ultimately destined for space. So consulting with industries, how does that map to the how to design origami part? Are you are there patterns applicable to industries? Uh, the patterns for folding origami, and is there a commonality of what is like good design uh, that's universal? There are. There are definitely patterns in origami that apply to industrial problems. I mean, and that's kind of the reason for, for getting into it uh, was that I, I could bring experience and knowledge of origami patterns uh, to industry. Now that said, it's very rare that an origami pattern, a specific pattern applies specifically to an industrial problem. It's rather that a family of patterns from the world of origami can be adapted in some way to solve the origami problem. And so you know, doing engineering, we 
we look for the general principles or the mathematical descriptions that would apply to the origami patterns and then use those to do engineering uh, where you're designing and, and modeling and, 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 and evaluating against usually a pretty well-defined set of criteria of success. And that addresses the second question you asked about what, what constitutes good origami. Uh, because in the art world, the criteria of evaluation is aesthetics. And in engineering, while aesthetics definitely play a role, the dominant criteria are our engineering criteria, mass, weight, deployability, uh, resistance to vibration, um, ergonomics. In fact, uh, you know, the, in industry, ergonomics usually, for something that's a consumer product, it has to be really, really easy to, to use, to fold. Whereas in origami art, we're generally pretty comfortable with stuff that is really, really hard that only an expert can fold. So the criteria are often very different between art and, uh, and engineering. And are those patterns, if you had to kind of organize them, are they origami patterns or engineering patterns applied to origami? The patterns that apply to engineering have an existence in the world of origami. Um, you know, and, and people in the origami world think of them as origami patterns. A really good example is a pattern that, that's used in space. It's called a flasher. Back in early 2000s, a couple of origami artists explored flashers as origami patterns and creating a, a Jeremy Schaefer and Chris Palmer. And they came up with all sorts of amazing artistic variations of things that opened and closed and some looked like hats and some twirled in multiple directions as they opened, but it was purely an artistic thing. But, and yet those patterns have a very definite applicability for deployable structures in space. And there's a currently a NASA um, development called Starshade that makes use of a Fleischer pattern. We recognize, the name comes from the world of origami, but it actually turns out that engineers were investigating patterns like this completely separate from the world of origami, even, even back in the, in the 50s and 60s. And so, in the case of flashers, we're sort of melding concepts that came from the world of origami and, and concepts that came outside the world of origami. And uh, when it comes to constructing the application for space, you really don't care where it comes from as long as it's got the properties you want, ease of deployment and small size and, and, and taking advantage of taking into account things like thickness and stiffness and strain as well. So you mentioned uh, a whole wide range of evolution of origami, uh, origami in space, NASA, patterns that came out of the 50s and 60s. What's the role of tradition in origami? Is it constantly evolving? Is there a traditional and a modern origami? Well, there is a traditional origami, but traditional origami is old origami. I mean, it's, it's the origami goes back hundreds of years in Japan. Um, it's been uh, reliably traced back to 1600s and um, there's some signs that it's, it's much older. And, and by origami, I mean decorative paper folding, things that we'd look at and say, yes, that's, that's origami because people have been folding paper-like materials for far longer than that. 
you know, so traditional origami is that origami that came out of Japan for which the original artist is, is unknown. Things like the crane, the tsuri, that's been around for hundreds of years and no one knows who came up with it. So we just said, well, that's all traditional origami. There, there were several Japanese origami masters during the middle of the 20th century. The, the most well-known, Akira Yoshizawa, but, but others, Asayo Honda, Momotani family, who came up with many designs that because they appeared in books that and were sort of shorn of their, their provenance, some people would, would refer to some of those designs as traditional, even though, in fact, no, you might say, no, that, that's a Honda design. But the, but but that's what people refer to when they use the term traditional origami. There are some artists who say, well, I want to, I'm interested in origami that's in a traditional style. And that's a little, that's not so well defined what is meant by that. But usually what is meant is something that can be folded from a single uncut square of fairly ordinary paper, like uh, the uh, classic Japanese origami paper. And so it probably isn't terribly complicated and, uh, and doesn't make use of some of the more modern folding techniques like, uh, like wet folding or, or that requires super thin, strong paper to be realized. Uh, those, are, those are things that came into the art later, came, became widespread maybe in the 90s and thereafter. And so that's, that wouldn't be thought of as traditional. But, there's not a really firmly defined tradition. Obviously, you, you straddle both worlds that we're kind of interested in, which is the artist and engineer. And I think even in our, one of our, uh, our introductory call, you said people sometimes ask you, are you an artist or an engineer? And when Tony and I started exploring this, that was kind of a little bit of it. Is it an or or an and? So you've spent time around both, you know, obviously plenty of engineers in your life and, and spent a lifetime there, but you've also... I imagine uh, spent a lot of time around a lot of just pure origami artists, and then you all kind of examined your own mindset. Where do those get really close, and where do they diverge? And you for me, it's it's definitely both. I'll be the first to say that uh, different artists have different viewpoints, and there are lots of origami artists who would say, "No, I don't really incorporate engineering. I don't have any sort of engineering aspect to my art." For me, in both the on the engineering side and the artistic side, there's always a mix of the two. And, and it, the mix varies. You know, on the, on the artistic side, we're, we're driven more by aesthetics. Um, and so then it feels more like art. But very often to accomplish my aesthetic goals, I'm using math and computers and tools, uh, laser scoring to, to score folds into paper and things like that. So I certainly use a lot of engineering like things to create my own. Similarly, on the engineering side, um, even doing when I was doing lasers and optical electronics, there's an aesthetic component to the work in that, um, yes, I was trying to solve specific technical problems, but I would follow solutions that appeared to be elegant. In part, that's because um, they, that very often led to real solutions. Nature, you know, there's a saying, nature abhors a vacuum, but I also think nature appreciates elegance. Could you define what elegance means to you? This is often like, you know, elegance when you see it. Like, what is an elegant yeah. design for you? So an elegant design is something where all the parts 
work together harmoniously and there's no there's no extraneous junk and then i guess what makes something especially elegant is if there's a little bit of a surprise on the reveal that turns into after the fact recognition that that should have been obvious when when you discover it and you go oh this is it and then you think but of course it had to be it's so complex it's simple <laughs> yeah yeah great and thinking about kind of complexity too um i i I guess I read a, a, an interview, a past interview of yours, and it mentioned, uh, as someone asked, I guess, how much time it takes your, your pieces. And uh, I think you, well, your answer ranged somewhere from maybe a couple hours to seven years, I think. And you had a piece that, that took seven years to fold. So I thought that was kind of an interesting piece to ask about. It Was that a complexity issue or you just forgot about I it? I think or? it was a procrastination issue. So the design is a cactus covered in spines. And so the process of folding all the spines is just really, really tedious. And, and so I only wanted to do a, a little bit at a time. You know, I, I fold a little bit and then say, well, this is tedious. I'm going to put this aside. And, and so much, you know, the vast majority of that seven years was spent with it sitting on a shelf, sort of staring down at me saying, you need to get back to me and finish me off sometime. And, uh, but it, <laughs> It actually took the impetus of an exhibition. I was doing an exhibition with Botanical Garden, and they said, we, we want a, a really uh, impressive centerpiece for this exhibition. What, what do you have? And I thought, well, I've, I've got this cactus, but that means I need to finish it. And so I did. You mentioned the book earlier you said when you when you made your transition to the uh full-time you wanted to it was about writing this book which you'd written several books already and it was a book that only you thought you could write which which book was that and what was the the uh criteria that you made that decision? so the book was is called origami design secrets mathematical methods for an ancient art there's a little bit of an homage in the title because when I was a child, the most influential book when I was about 11 years old, 10 or 11, was a big re recipe book, a collection of designs uh, by Robert Harding, and it's called Secrets of Origami. I wanted to pay honor to that, to that book, but also the fact that design at that time seemed like a secret to an awful lot of people. It was a very mysterious thing. People would say, how do you design? And people's answer would be, well, I, I, try, to, I try to think like the paper. You know, it's a, it's a very, what I would consider sort of nebulous, <laughs> hard to follow um, designs and uh, hard to follow answers. And I had developed a lot of tools that um, sort of ways of approaching the problem that could be described in, in words and math and pictures that I could be taught to other people. I mean, I, one, of my, um, one of my good friends, probably one of, I think one of the most innovative origami designers of, of the late 20th century is John Montrell. And, and John, when I asked him how to design it, he would say, well, I just, I, I looked at it and I saw what the solution needed to be. And he can. Uh, and I couldn't, but I, but I could use 
my step-by-step -step techniques to get there, to, to get to the things I wanted to. And what was more was I felt like I could teach those to others. And so that's what I wanted to do with that book. And so it came out in, I think, around 2003 or thereabouts. And I've, I've been pretty pleased to, to, to hear from a lot of people that said, yes, this was my entree into origami design. And they were able to design things using those techniques. And then even better, they didn't stop at the end of the book, but they continued to develop their own design techniques and teach those to other people so that the world of design has continued to, to grow and expand even uh, well beyond what was in that book. As you were describing that, I had this kind of vision of kind of magicians and not giving away the secret to a magic trick or something like that. When you said, you know, look at the paper, or I feel the paper. Or I... Was there any of that kind of in, in the community where you don't give away the secrets? Or I think you also created computer programs that, where you can kind of come up with a design for people and making it a little too easy to get into the club? There, there was a period when uh, a few of the a few of the masters didn't want to give didn't give away how they folded things. Yeah, I mean, first off, in origami, it, once you it's very common to publish step by step instructions, and once you've done that, people can fold it. Doesn't necessarily tell how they came up with the idea, but it certainly allows other people to create the designs. And um, Yoshizawa, in particular was pretty protective of his, of his most complex designs. And when he was coming up with these back in the 50s, he really was coming up with things that were way beyond what anyone else was doing. Since then, I mean, people have we kind of reverse engineered a lot of those things and, and, and can place place that design in the broader landscape of design approaches that are out there. So people kind of rediscover. But I think that idea of, of keeping, of trying to keep secrets of how to fold, just sort of never really caught on in the rest of the world and, and faded out in Japan. However, to teach someone else how to fold a design, you, you do have to put effort into creating some sort of representation, step-by-step -step instructions or, or crease pattern or something. And, and a lot of designers just don't, that's not important to them to spend hours or days creating instructions. So there's still plenty of things out there that are mysterious and that no one else knows how to hold them. But it's not because they're trying to be kept a secret. It's just that the designer doesn't have the time or inclination to someone else how to do it your journey of, um, of talking to people and they're not being able to explain how they come up with the design reminds me of the journey of mastery to reach unconscious competence, as they say. I know how to do it, but I, I can't tell you how I do it. Uh, it's, it's, it's intuition and pattern matching at that point. But it sounds like you maybe reach unconscious competence, but somehow pulled back to conscious competence. You were able to put together the frameworks. And also you said, you might be the only person who could have written this book. Where do you think that comes from? Is from from your engineering, your physics background, as you kind of describe putting frameworks around it? Yeah, so I think it's a combination of things. Um, I'm part, to, to write that book, one needed to be a pretty decent writer. And 
I like to write. I've I'd written lots of technical papers. I like to teach. So, so I had this communications piece sort of sitting there that could be used. There was the fact that uh, I'm, in my engineering and, and scientific background, my work was very much theoretical. And so I had this experience and model of taking a phenomenon that I was interested in and trying to reduce it to mathematical descriptions and, and algorithmic steps, you know, and, and that was a necessary piece. There was, of course, the requirement that both of those pieces came together in the origami world. I think that was why, that was kind of what meant, gave me this idea. I didn't see others at the time. There were certainly people who could design incredibly beautiful and complex things, uh, but I didn't see a, a match between the ability to design, the ability to translate concepts into explanation and, and a desire to, to write that book. So I think that was, that was what was unique. Coming back to John again, the mental model that I had have of him was um, for me, being able to write down algorithms and steps, it was like writing, I could, I could write the software to do design. But for John, it was hardwired. <laughs> it was in hardware for him. Um, <laughs> so he, would, he wouldn't write a program because it just, his mind just worked that way. And I think mm. for lots of origami artists, you know, there's a blend of what I now call intuition, you're just your understanding of, of the processes. And not all people can or are interested in trying to as you say, pull it back and put it into words. Yes. Speaking about the artist-engineer dichotomy, I think maybe that's even a stereotype where the artists, you know, start with intuition, uh, as your your colleague John just understands the space of origami very well. And from the engineering point of view, we often start with very structured steps, and we hope to get to intuition. You know, we're hope to be that great architect or physicist who's just doing a lot of pattern matching. It's very interesting to hear. Uh, even in origami, people are coming in from from different directions. And in the and the in the origami world, we are our art is very very constrained by what we call rules of nature. If, as most origami artists do, we use uncut paper folding only, that means you can't stretch. Um, if it's a single uncut sheet, you can't um, you know put multiple things together. And so, like in, like engineers we are bound by the laws of physics and what we can accomplish and use aesthetic, but we're trying to accomplish aesthetic goals. So uh, people, who are, people who are successful in doing complex origami have to take into account something of, a, of this engineering approach. So there's, there's a lot more crossover. And so for example, coming back to John, he's, uh, he's got an intuitive understanding. So you, know, so you might say, oh, well, he comes from the artistic side, but he's got a brilliant mathematical mind. He's a superb chess player. So I'm, he really does understand pattern and structure and constraints, as, as do lots of other origami artists who are striving for aesthetic goals. Just had the programs already running in his mind. The content that you do make, what, what do you enjoy making? I've seen insects and I've seen, I've, I've had friends give me hummingbirds, but uh, how do you pick your subjects or, or is it such a wide range or have you run out of things to do or? 
Oh, I've definitely not run out of things to do. Never, never will that. They tend to come into in two categories, representational and, and geometric. Um, and when with representational origami, I'm I'm generally motivated by nature and wildlife. So that's why the insects, birds, animals, um, some plants. I have a an emotional reaction uh, when I see wildlife, and I want to capture some of that in paper and folding. On the on the geometric abstract side, there I, it's 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 a little harder to say. The motivation is to create a beautiful shape that's different from uh, from what's been done before. Uh, and it's usually strongly motivated by solving some mathematical problem. There's a class of shapes that requires a solution to some math problem, figure out how to realize that shape. Um, and so then I go solve the math problem and, and hopefully that gives me the tools I need to achieve these, these shapes. And they may be, um, may be curved or maybe uh, smooth or sharply folded, but it's usually just trying to create something that's, that's, that's got some beauty to it a uh, little bit of repetition, but not so much repetition as to be boring. Um, and usually, hopefully, some element of surprise where you think your first reaction is, wait, that, that's not possible. And then you see it and it is. One last question from me. If someone wants to get started folding uh, and they don't want to train to become a physicist first, what would you recommend? Well, the vast majority of origami artists didn't train them to do this. So right. uh, <laughs> Forget put that. that out of your mind. It's a non-issue. I, th I think the uh, there are so many genres of origami. Um, you know, there's there's plenty of new and simple origami that's that's being created every year. It's not not everyone is trying to do the most complicated things. There's plants, there's modular origami, which is puts multiple sheets of paper together. There are complex figures. So just find something that, that makes you go, that looks like it might be fun. Uh, you know, and, and then you can pursue that. How to get into it? Nowadays, there's a ton of videos on the, on the internet. Um, and that's a very, very easy way to get in. To origami, there's no investment, you just need paper. Um, I would also encourage people to explore books, partly because uh, there's a lot of really good designs that only exist in books. There's some that you can't easily present how to do in a video, but also the process of learning to fold from step-by-step -step instructions, I think helps train your brain to understand origami. Because going from each step to the next is like solving a little bitty origami design problem. You have a picture of, it looks like this over here and it looks like this over here. What's the motion that gets you from one to the other? And hopefully the author of the book has made those steps small enough that it's solvable. But each time you solve one of those little puzzles to go from one step to the next, you build some neuron connections that'll, that will help you do more. Um, and, and so I encourage that as well. Out of your books, is there a uh, the starter book, the the one that kind of gives you the introduction? There's one that I recommend more often than others called uh, Origami in Action. 
um, because it's a good starter book. It has a lot of easy things in it. It's got a few things that are more challenging for people who want to stretch themselves, but also because all of the objects in the book move in some way, birds flap their wings, stuff like that. That's, there's, a, there's an element of fun to it as well. Um, and fortunately, it's still in print, so uh, I highly encourage it. Uh, and just speaking of inspiration, uh, I did see one of your videos on YouTube, 11 Levels of Origami, Easy to Complex. It was a uh, cicada, so with Brood X this year, I hope people are inspired to uh, check out that video and start with cicadas maybe. Yeah, and you know, by the time uh, the next Brood X rolls around, there may be a 12th or 13th level to that uh, levels <laughs> of cicada. Right. Great. Well, this is uh, this has been wonderful and, and fascinating and fun conversation. I want to thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoy the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.